This show was first broadcast on Free FM, Hamilton, New Zealand's community access media organisation. For more information on our lineup of shows and the role we play in the media, visit freefm.org.nz. I'm Amber Hamill, the Community Media Coordinator at Free FM. And I'm Murdoch Ngaho, Māori Media Coordinator at Free FM. I'm not a journalist. I am not a journalist. I'm from Aotearoa. I'm from Australia. I don't know much about foreign ministry, but I do know the Minister for Foreign Affairs. I don't know much about the Minister for Foreign Affairs, but I might know a little bit about foreign ministry. I mean, a bit. Like, not heaps. We've got a new show about foreign ministry. Localising. Global. Aotearoa. It's got to be interesting because we've got the Minister for Foreign Affairs. Call it what you like. We've got the talent. Kilda, we're back again with another episode. We have so the minister in studio with yes, us, Kilda Nanaya. Kilda, Kilda. This week, we're going to start talking about the relationship and the intimate relationship that we have with Australia, and explore how close that relationship is. Nanaya, tell us about that relationship with Australia. The relationship with Australia is close. Uh, there are close allies and partners when we go back to thinking about, you know, the Anzacs and fighting in the world wars. Uh, obviously, the security aspect of the relationship is close. But when I think from an Indigenous perspective, uh, the respect that we have as Māori for the Indigenous people in Australia, uh, it's a warm relationship and can be closer. So that's part of my effort is to ensure that the integrity of the relationship that we can have as a country is founded on a very strong cultural basis through our Indigenous to Indigenous connections, affirming what is already a close relationship in terms of the security arrangements with Australia. It's a formal relationship that we have. But also a lot of our whanau go to Australia to uh, work and live. It's the first place of preference, if you like, for many of our whanau. I'm really interested in um, hearing you talk about that um, First Nation to First Nation people connection. When you think about the reason that New Zealand and Australia are in a close relationship, it's kind of a little bit born of trauma if you're thinking about either the war or colonisation. And there's kind of this shared experience of not great experiences, you know what I mean? Yeah, well, it's almost kind of a tale of two, two parts of the relationship because at an Indigenous level, the way in which Māori uh, were impacted by colonisation as well as uh, the Australians, there are some similarities, although the stark difference between us as Indigenous peoples is we had a treaty Mm -hmm. uh, to underpin the nature of the relationship between uh, the Crown and Māori, whereas that was not the case uh, in in Australia. Their their colonisation experience was born out of a view at the time that Tiranalis gave mandate to the way in which government was established there, so a very, very different context. As an Australian in New Zealand and not a First Nations Australian, coming to New Zealand and seeing how, I mean it's not the utopian vision a lot of Australians would like to paint it as, but the the treaty for all its flaws and um, challenges is a much different starting point than Terranalis and I think 
exactly like you're identifying it it frames the power dynamics very differently and obviously that's an ongoing conversation in New Zealand but it's where in Australia it's been very difficult to get that conversation started yeah and we've learnt from each other deliberately so I mean a lot of the socialisation or conscientisation of our understanding of each other as Indigenous peoples with, through the arts, music, Yothi mm, Yundi. That's right. You know, Midnight Oil. Right. You know, uh, so a lot of the um, ways in which we began to uh, appreciate our own history as Māori, but look across the Tasman and figure out what was it that we could offer um, in terms of experience and insight to the challenges uh, in Australia, I think have grown over time. I think about the education uh, pathway that New Zealand has taken, Māori medium mm-hmm. education, and how Australia have really looked to some of that leadership and uh, drawn f- uh, its own experiences um, and the way that they've established native schools and things like that in um, in the Northern Territory. But so, those, um, you know, there's lots to share. Yeah, that that kind of um, solidarity goes back, for, you know, in kind of soft and harder ways from the Maori Women's Welfare League going to offer support in Indigenous communities to um, appearances and, and kind of support in the tent embassy. And it's been a very supportive relationship on that basis for a long time. I think that... that yeah, it's great to identify that um, they've been able to be learnings and support on both sides of it. That's a, I mean, that's a great basis for a relationship. It is, and it's a respectful basis because while there are many similarities, there are many differences. Right. And what you appreciate in the difference is that you can offer context and create kind of insights based on our journey, but never um, in a way to actually supersede the experience of uh, Indigenous First Nations peoples in, in Australia and the path that they want to take. So, as I say, education pathways have been often looked to as an opportunity to learn from our experience, the way that we deliver health. In fact, First Nations peoples around the world generally come together on education, health, justice systems and natural resources. Those are very common areas where you find you want to learn and innovate your experience. The challenges we've had around uh, systemic colonisation impacting on language, impacting on the way that we live, land tenure and and things like that are common as well. Mm. So we often have a basis from which to share our lived experience but also learn from each other in terms of how to move into a self-determination mode. Mm. Yeah. So it's all, you know, it's all a really important time. If I fast track to now and my role in the previous government as Minister for Māori Development, Associate Minister for Trade, Australia was the first country that we actively established an Indigenous collaboration agreement between mm. myself and Minister Ken Wyatt uh, for Indigenous Relations. And the purpose of that collaboration agreement was to signal that we respect uh, each other as Indigenous peoples, we respect the trans-Tasman nature of the relationship, but we wanted to deepen the opportunity to cooperate on a number of fronts. So we identified, for example, the potential of trade relationships as a result of tourism, cultural tourism, procurement, and wanted to make sure that there were future opportunities in those spaces that we could continue to grow our relationships. So I think that's the beginning of new things as well.
Is it more so Māori Indigenous to Indigenous peoples? Very much so. The whole point of the Indigenous Collaboration Agreement uh, with the First Nations people of uh, Australia was to assure ourselves of an Indigenous to Indigenous set of agreements across a range of areas like tourism, cultural tourism, arts, procurement and enterprise. Uh, and, And those were really key areas that we thought well if we identify that there are real opportunities here then you know we'll work in the future towards trying to strengthen what that starts to look like and especially i mean that's a quite a nice circle from the from starting from the point of view of so much learning and cultural exchange has already happened through the arts and so kind of and, and cultural um uh, value and and setting that as a basis for a formal agreement is a great place to start feels like well you know uh, as we've spoken previously the foreign affairs part of the portfolio is about relationships and then the kind of mainframe of the foreign affairs space is often trade at an indigenous level the mainframe of the relationship is the relationship yeah, awesome. and it's the enduring nature of the relationship over a long period of time so it's not like being trying to be fair with the friends for a purpose right. it's like saying well let's let's start here and let's kind of keep going and see see where that takes us. But actually recognising that the reciprocity of that relationship is an enduring element of how we want to be as a people, how we how what we do here in New Zealand contributes to uh, what can strengthen and support the aspirations of other Indigenous peoples. So, like all relationships, this relationship um. has good days and bad days. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and, you know, we identified that the kind of starting point for getting in bed together, if you like, is maybe not so rosy. But how how do you kind of frame those challenges now? I think if I uh, think about the relationship with Australia from a government-to-government perspective, I guess the respect that we have formed um, through a number of aspects of the relationship, the ANZAC relationship, um, our single economic market uh, to make it easier uh, for our businesses to trade across the Tasman, simplifying our border processes so that when people go and see relations, you know, smart gates there and all of that. Um, we, we've continued to, to try and improve the nature of how that relationship is reflected in day-to-day kind of transactions and people movements and, and things like that. But there are rub points, you know. Yeah. We have a number of New Zealanders living in Australia who, for the most part, consider themselves very much uh, socialised, embedded within the Australian culture. Uh, and one of the rub points uh, is the 501 policy and uh, deporting uh, New Zealanders back here. In fact, our Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern uh, raised that in her last leaders' meeting over in Sydney uh, with Prime Minister Morrison. Uh, that this is an area that continues to create tension for New Zealand because if someone who has travelled to Australia and spent the best part of 30, 35 years there consider themselves as Australians and then are deported back, no support network, no whānau, uh, you know, that's actually not the best way of uh, dealing with uh, these substantial issues. And I think she raised it. She said something like... Um, Australia's exporting its um, problems uh, to New Zealand. 
you know, these are the, the challenging conversations that we continue to have with Australia. But because we have a strong relationship at one level, it doesn't stop us discussing the really difficult issues, like in a normal relationship. Like in a functioning relationship. Mm. I guess that, you know, we've had a very pointy example of shared New Zealand citizenship and the different ways those countries are, are kind of willing to support their citizens when they're in trouble in the case where a woman who held joint citizenship had her Australian citizenship cancelled after I'm not exactly sure what circumstances and possibly no one is crossing the Syrian border but that's a very out of the ordinary that's quite a unique set of circumstances where the kind of thing you're talking about where Australia is can be quick to wash their hands of people who have called Australia home for a long time and maybe haven't really known another home, being New Zealand. I guess that's a pretty big difference in the way these two countries think about people and belonging. Well, New Zealand doesn't have a policy of stripping citizenship, so that's that's a really big difference. We don't believe in people being stateless so it it does underpin uh, where we differ um, to Australia but on that particular issue that is a difficult issue because if we were thinking about the circumstances and without going too much into the detail the circumstances did require two countries where there was dual citizenship to actually look to the challenge of um, uh, what would it take to uh, repatriate this person to whichever country and what other factors that needed to be considered to young children, mm. where's the support for the family. You know, all these issues are out in the public domain and, and have kind of been a part of a very complex set of considerations as we discuss that particular issue. But if I lift it up to a higher level and say, well, in terms of how New Zealand and Australia should be approaching complex issues of citizenship and... Uh, I mean, fundamentally, I guess our starting point, again, as a country, is we shouldn't leave anyone stateless. And if we're trying to find genuine, uh, long-lasting solutions uh, for people in in various circumstances, um, we have to be prepared to have that conversation between two countries. Is, is it a legitimate um, approach to be taking? And that, at a diplomacy level, we just never had that conversation. Mm. It was That decision was made as a policy decision. Right. And I guess that manifests in other ways as well, where New Zealand has opened their arms and the possibility of settling refugees who are currently in detention in Australia and haven't been able to convince Australia of the value of that offer. I, it just feels like we keep coming against uh, up with these same kind of, hey, this is what we think about people and this is h- how do we kind of, uh, yeah, how do we align our values and, and um, expressions of those on these people matters? Well, you know, New Zealand continues to assert a values-based approach to foreign policy and we have an independent foreign policy, our commitment to... Um, international conventions in relation to uh, refugees and, and you know setting a, a quota if you like of refugees coming to New Zealand supported by UNSA 
um, is very much a part of our DNA, what we stand for and what we believe being a good global citizen requires um, from developed nations, certainly um, in our region. So we've always been like that. I can remember as a junior MP, the temper, you know, mm-hmm. and that became quite a challenging conversation. But uh, if I if I recall, Helen Clark was the Prime Minister at the time. Uh, and again, uh, because of our commitment to um, the UN and international norms and rules that govern a range of things, including universal human rights and the way that we treat people, our refugee commitment was very clear. And it, it has always been like that because, again, we can't. Where else will people who have nowhere to go? Where else would they go if we didn't have a responsible global community? Right. And we're mm. thinking about this more and more because we're in the Pacific, and there is a very real prospect—not today, not tomorrow—but over refugees. time of climate refugees. So, um, you know, and that's close to our heart because we are of the Pacific and Polynesian communities and countries face the very real prospect of the land that they have come to love and live in may well not be there over a a matter of a a few decades. So we have to consider uh, these types of issues in our approach because the reality is closer to us um, in in ways such as that. That's another interesting kind of area for the relationship, I guess, in in terms of um, Australia's approach to climate change and New Zealand's approach to climate change and um, as we're recording now we've just seen a, um, a, a relatively big budget line for climate change in New Zealand and I think the conversation is very different um, across the Tasman and I just wonder like at what, what, at what point do you just kind of take your mate aside and be like mate I think you've had enough it's time to go you know like wind your neck in well, I, I don't know if that's the exact com- nature of the conversation, but for example... Sorry, I'll translate. <laughs> you know, the, 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 this is the nature of uh, diplomatic engagements between leaders and ministers. This is um, why I on, don't do this. On a number yeah. of issues, but we've got PM Morrison coming to New Zealand um, at the end of the, the month, and he will be uh, undertaking bilaterals with our Prime Minister, and without a doubt... The climate change commitment will inevitably be one of the big issues that they discuss alongside others. But that's, you know, that's as you expect your leaders uh, to undertake your best interests and have those necessary conversations, then they try and find ways where they can either agree or agree to disagree. But that's a very, once the, once you get to that point, that becomes a matter for the public record. Right. Um, So I know that our Prime Minister has always maintained that climate change is a nuclear issue of our time and she's very focused on New Zealand making sure at a domestic level we're committing as we uh, engage and advocate with other countries within our region and in the global community to do more uh, to reach your climate change objectives. That's why COP26 will be such an important forum uh, to be at and that's why in the last budget and last few budgets, we've made incremental steps towards our own domestic commitments. Interesting because the relationship where it differs as well is in that area of defence, right? We, we view defence a little bit differently to Australia. Well, we have very much a, a peace and stability frame mm. over the way in which we see um, uh, the strength of our advocacy uh, 
alongside the Pacific. But we're mindful that New Zealand is very much a gateway uh, to the Pacific. Mm. Australia has a very much a security lens because of how it's positioned in terms of to the rest of Southeast Asia and you know um, various alliances that they have. So I think they're very much in that frame because of where they're positioned and what their traditional focus has been. I wondered if you could talk a little bit about on this kind of security topic, but what is Five Eyes? Yeah, got in trouble around uh, comments I made recently <laughs> on Five Eyes. I mean, I'd have been called Four Eyes. <laughs> yeah. The Five Eyes relationship is a security and intelligence relationship made up of the US, the UK, Canada, Australia and New Zealand. And it has a very specific purpose. The reason why I got into trouble um, in, in some of my statements previously was on human rights issues. I didn't think on every issue all the time the Five Eyes arrangements needed to be called in to kind of make a statement. And human rights was an area where I thought... Actually, there are significant things happening around the world. If we had a broader multilateral uh, coalition of interests making statements, that is by far the way to go. Um, you know, uh, and over time, I think the media have um, mischaracterized every statement of those five countries as five eyes statements. Mm-hmm. I'm really clear and have been uh, since becoming a foreign affairs minister. That the those the five eyes relationship is, has a very specific purpose, and we respect the purpose. We contribute to uh, that framework um, and get a lot from it. Um, but again, we don't have to use use five eyes for everything. Who was the main benefactor of five eyes out of that alliance? Who gets the most usage? Who gets the best mileage? Look, I'm not sure whether that is the. The question, I think, at various times, I would say that every member of that alliance, that relationship, kind of gets different things out of it. Um, but the purpose of it is very much uh, in the security and intelligence kind of framework. Um, and I think that's, again, that's what has a specific purpose and it should remain for that purpose. I think if we look across the spectrum of participants, there are different approaches to intelligence, defence, security, are so broad that at different times they must all take something from it, right? I'm saying that at, at different times, different countries will take um, different things from that particular relationship. We're all positioned around the globe, obviously. Um, yeah, and it's, it's you know, th- there is information for, for a particular purpose, but... You know, this is why I say on human rights issues, it's not necessary all the time to invoke the Five Eyes arrangements to make statements on human rights. I, I just mm. think we can look further afield. And in fact, if we think about the big issues that are challenging um, our time around um, human rights abuses, uh, when we think about open democracy and things that are contrary to that, uh, again, there are broader coalitions of interests that would support upholding um, those those types of approaches. So that's an invitation, I think, to talk about um, another challenging relationship that Australia is in and where we, well, New Zealand, might have a role to play in kind of 
taking our friends aside and having a word. And I know that um, the we, we talked about the relationship between New Zealand, Australia and China in the last time we were talking, but it's delicate. How it do is, we, it is. And it's, it's not just about trade. No, it isn't, it isn't. And, you know, it's not for one country to tell another country how to kind of undertake its own foreign policy and its diplomatic relationships, its bilateral, kind of the nature, the bilateral nature of what falls from a relationship. So we watch uh, carefully what is happening with Australia and we will navigate our way through uh, a challenging relationship um, and that is, uh, for example, China. Both the Prime Minister and myself gave uh, speeches in terms of trying to articulate the nature of that relationship with China. We're taking a very different approach because we can see the impact of what's happened uh, to Australia in its own relationship and we are mindful uh, that we've got a lot of considerations. Yes, partly trade, but actually COVID as well, navigating our way in a, in a COVID uh, context and mindful that we are wholly dependent in terms of our export markets to China and we need to build resilience in those markets. So give our exporters time to think about what does resilience look like in terms of what they're sending to market and things mm-hmm. like that. So we've said we've got a respectful relationship with China. We will be con- consistent and predictable. Um, but we have moved beyond uh, a relationship of first to a more mature one and we'll continue to navigate our way through um, some pretty significant issues in that space. We're going to leave it there, Nanaya, and pick it up again next week on our next episode. Thank you. Kia ora. Thank you. Kia ora, ko Murdoch tēnei, te kaiwhakari te pāpāho Māori ki tuia ngā reo o te hāpuri. Kia ora, it's Murdoch, Māori Media Coordinator here at Free FM and we hope you are enjoying all the new Māori-focused kaupapa and kōrero happening on Free FM. Of course, we would love to have more, so if you have kōrero or a kaupapa you want to talk about, get in contact with me, Māori Media at freefm.org.nz. Thanks for listening to this Free FM podcast. If you want to hear more content like this, you can support Free FM via Patreon. Head to patreon.com/freefm89 to find out more.